You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we're going to be giving you my recap of UFC Fight Island 5, Marlon Morice versus Corey Sandhagen, as well as giving you my preview and predictions for UFC Fight Island 6 with a main event bout between top-ranked featherweight contenders. You have the return of Brian T-City Ortega going up against the top-ranked contender, the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, guys. We're back for episode 119, I believe. Um, I know this is coming out pretty late, considering that the fight between Ortega and the Korean Zombie is tomorrow night. But I had to make sure I got these predictions out to you. They were going to go up yesterday, but uh, I decided to put a little bit more research into um, to some of the fights on the card. I figured it would be a good idea to really, really search into that Brian Ortega and Korean Zombie fight because that is a very... Very close matchup in all facets of mixed martial arts, and uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize. Like I know everybody thinks it's an amazing fight, and uh, we were supposed to get it twice before. I believe I know there was supposed to be one in October of last year, and then this year, obviously, we're getting it in October. So uh, maybe only twice, but for some reason, I think it might have been booked three times. But I mean, you know, it is what it is. But we're getting it now. Um, knock on wood. They both made weight, so we're all good. Brian Ortega ended up shaving his his luscious locks off and donating his hair to uh, Locks of Love, I think it's called, for kids, for like childhood cancer, donating his hair. So props to him, um, you know, and he now comes in with uh, a baldy ed. He's a member of the baldy ed club with Brian Boom Boom Kelleher, so... That's going to be interesting. Um, I'm really excited for that fight. Let's start it off with breaking down this last weekend's card between Marlon Morice and Corey Sandhagen, the UFC Fight Island Five. Um, we'll start on the uh, with the knockout, uh, the greatest knockout of all time in quotation marks from a lot of people. I don't know if I would put it there, but I do think it was a very good knockout, and that was a that was Joaquin Buckley knocking out Impa Kasanganai with the spinning jump spinning back kick to the jaw and uh if i remember correctly i believe i believe that Joaquin Buckley got his rear leg caught like uh Impa Kasanga and I caught the rear leg body kick and he threw it to the side cuz when you catch the kick you normally want to throw it to the side and then you can leap in with your lead hook you know depending on what stance you're in but they usually they'll catch it and they'll throw it and they'll either take a they'll either take the angle to the side um, opposite of the kick or they're going to take the step in with the left hook and uh, catch you as they throw that kick towards that you know towards the lead hand as they throw the kick towards the lead side it's going to add momentum into the uh the left hook of the opponent if they want to decide to counter that kick Let's look it up. So, Joaquin. Here, Buckley. It's like the first. Okay, so. Yeah, so here's what happens. So, he threw the left leg, the back leg power round kick. Um, Kasanga and I caught it with the lead left hand underneath the uh, ankle. And he was going to use that to then throw it to the side and probably try to counter with the right hand. But the momentum of him throwing that kick or pushing that kick to the side, um, Buckley turned with the kick, jumped in the air, and used that momentum to spin 
with the plant leg and then landed it right on the jaw. Impa Kasangani had no defense, and uh, he landed it. So he throws that left uh, power body kick. Kasangani catches it, pulls it to the side, and then Kasangani is about to come in and close the distance. And with that momentum that Buckley had from that catch kick, the kick catch, and then throwing it to the side, he jumped in the air and landed that back spin kick to the jaw. And uh, for one of the greatest knockouts we've ever seen. And I, I don't know what's next for, I actually do know what's next for Joaquin Buckley. I believe he is fighting. Hold on. Let's see. I saw him. He just got a fight announced for UFC 255 against, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. Hold on. Joaquin Buckley. Yeah. So he's going to face Jordan Wright at UFC 255. So he's making a quick turnaround. That is in November, I believe. I believe that would be what is technically the uh, Madison Square Garden card, but it's not going to be there, I don't believe. Uh, it's on November 21st. And Jordan Wright's undefeated at 11-0. And, and uh, Joaquin Buckley's 11-3. I don't know much about Jordan Wright, but I will obviously have my research up to date when that fight gets closer. So yeah, Joaquin Buckley gets that viral knockout, and now he's going to face Jordan Wright at UFC 255. All right. Uh, what else do we talk about on this card? Uh, Ilya Taporia and Yusuf Zalal. Uh, what a phenomenal fight this was. Really, really solid fight between top, uh, you know, some really good prospects in that division. You know, it was it was a fight I was looking forward to. I was looking forward to it so much. I really wanted to see that fight. I wanted to see who was going to get the upper hand. And I remember, I believe I picked Ilya Taporia before I recorded the podcast, and then I switched it over to um, Yusuf Zalal because I just had this weird feeling that Zalal was going to be able to use that in and out style, the switching of stances, the fakes and feints. I thought that was going to give Taporia a hard time and make it harder for him to get in on takedowns. But that obviously wasn't the case. And uh, Ilya Taporia put on a masterclass, you know, won all three rounds, I believe. I believe he won 30-27. Maybe they gave one round to um, Yusuf Salal, but I believe he whitewashed him 30-27. But it was a good fight, and uh, I was really excited to see it, you know. And uh, I hadn't remembered seeing Yusuf Salal, but I know a lot of people had been talking about him and uh, really hyping him up, saying, you know, he was the next uh, the next top contender or one of the top contenders and the bright stars in that division. I still think he definitely can be, but Ilya Taporia just had phenomenal, phenomenal grappling. We knew that coming in. He was coming into the fight undefeated, eight wins, no losses. And uh, Ilya Taporia was able to just... You know, he was trying, he was able to, uh, he kind of reminded me a little bit of the approach that Justin Gaethje took against Tony Ferguson. And I don't want to say with the grappling, but there was something about how he landed his shots on the feet. And I could be shooting myself in the ass with this, you know, being completely wrong. But when he pressured Taporia or uh, Yusuf Salal up against the fence and was using quick shifts left and right to close the distance and then left hook right hand over the top. Um, a lot of them grazed off the shoulder of uh, Yusuf Salal. He's able to uh, turn the corner and catch the shot on the shoulder, deflect it off the shoulder. But he he's very good at just kind of faking and fainting, stepping in with the left hook and the overhand right. Um, really good left hook to the body. That's one thing you saw him use at the end of the first round, I believe, against Yusuf Salal. He got him up against the fence, was faking, bop, bop, 
boom, rip that left hook to the body. And a lot of the times he'll rip that left hook to the body and then come up to the head with the left hook. Um, but the grappling of Ilya Taporia is really what made the difference in this fight. Um, very, very good top control. Yusuf Salal was trying to time him stepping in with that knee up the middle. And uh, a lot of the times Ilya Taporia would catch it and then he would take the base leg and uh, pull it out and get the double leg takedown. He would get the double leg takedown up against the fence, um, try to turn the corner and then eventually work his way to the body lock, take the back, um, try to get the hooks in on the back to get like a rear naked choke. But then he ended up using that a lead arm to reach around to the other side of Ilya Tapor or uh, of Yusuf Salal. So he would take the back right um, from the body lock, and then he would use that lead hand, creep around to the far side of the neck, reach around, get the head and arm, and then slide that knee in across the stomach. Slide the shin in more. You slide the knee in, but the shin goes across the belly, and then take that other leg and throw it over the back to the opposite and put the heel on the opposite hip so that they can't move to side control from that one side because the heel is catching them and keeping them in place. And then they can't move the other way unless they, they have to find a way to fight the hand. So he used that. Um, but obviously Yusuf Salah was able to get out and uh, work his way back up. But event, but then it was just back to the takedowns, back to the takedowns. Um, Zalal tried to get a takedown, I believe. And then Taporia ended up finding a way to, I believe what happened is he had him in the arm triangle from the feet I or uh, the anaconda choke. I'm sorry. I believe he like front headlocked him, got the arm trying or the uh, anaconda choke, rolled it over, tried to get it. Zalal was up against the fence. So he used the, his feet on the fence to kick off and get a little bit of space. But then eventually um, Ilya Taporia was able to um, keep control of the head, step over into mount after one of the scrambles and uh, lock up that head and arm or the guillotine from the top mount, the, the mounted guillotine with the one arm, Looked like he was going to get it, but again, Taporia or uh, Zalal was able to just find a way to uh, sneak out of it and get out of get out of danger. But Ilya Taporia defeats him via unanimous decision, and uh, it, it really, really bright prospect um, is Ilya Taporia in that division. And uh, I'm excited to see what happens next for him. I don't think Yusuf Zalal is shot by any means. I don't want anybody to come in here thinking that he can't go and he's he's washed up. He, he's not going to be a top contender. Everybody suffers losses in their mixed martial arts career, and I think uh, to, uh, Yusuf Salal was just one of those guys who fought another really tough guy in, in Taporia and came up short, but I think he can come back from it, and I'm excited to see what's next for Ilya Taporia. What's next? What's next on the card that we could talk about? Um, hold on. Let me close out this. Uh, okay, Tom Aspinall defeated Alan Badeau by first-round knockout. Pretty much what we expected. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Caught him on the feet, dropped him, ground and pound, got the knockout. Um, another one fight I really want to talk about is uh, Dreykus, Dreykus Duplessis versus defeating Marcus Perez via first-round knockout in the middleweight division. Um, Dreykus Duplessis was a former champion in another organization, had two back-to-back -back title fights with, uh, I just can't remember the guy's name, uh, Roberto Soldich. He had back-to-back uh, -back fights with Roberto Soldich, won the first fight via knockout and lost the second fight by getting finished. And then I believe he came back and had one more win, and then that's when he moved over to the UFC maybe, unless I'm wrong. Let me see. Uh, Drake is duplicity. Uh He was KSW middleweight champion, right? Uh... 
I believe KSW middleweight champion, if I could find it. Yeah, so he's 15 and two overall now after the uh, first round knockout over Marcus Perez. You know, Perez seemed to be doing a decent job trying to land that left kick to the body. We knew that Marcus Perez had a very, very solid left power kick to the body, and he was going to be looking to exploit that against uh, Dracus Duplessis. But there was a point where Dracus pushed him up against the fence and was looking to land that left hook to the body. Uh, Marcus Perez spun, went to do a spinning back elbow. As he spun, he lowered his level right into that left shot to the body, and it hit him right on the temple, dropped him. Uh, Dracus Duplessis jumped on top of him, got the ground and pound, and got the first round finish over Marcus Perez. Um, Perez has been kind of up and down in his career, but he's got very, very good grappling, good jujitsu. And uh, for him to come into the UFC in his first fight in the UFC as a former champion from another organization and to get a first round knockout like that, timing the the level change on the spinning elbow to land that left hook right to the temple, drop him, jump on top of him and finish him. Um, I, I'm really excited to see where Dreykus Duplessis goes from here. Um, I think he's got a bright future. I don't know about the top contenders in that middleweight division, but I am excited to see where he goes. To come in on Fight Island on your UFC debut and get a first-round knockout is a big deal. So, um, and, and Marcus Perez, it's not like he never had a fight in the UFC. You know, he, he was tested in the UFC, had some wins, had some losses, but he's been in there with some good guys. And uh, for him to not get a knockout in the first round like that, that's really good for Duplessis. And... Uh, I don't know what's next for him, but I'm excited to watch it. Um, I, I, this is a guy I'm definitely going to be keeping my eye on. So, yeah, that's that uh, goes without saying. Uh, Marching Tabora defeats Ben Rothwell via decision. I'm going to be honest. I didn't really pay much attention to this fight, so I'm not going to sit here and give you a bullshit breakdown because there's no point in doing that. But, uh, yeah, Barbosa or uh, Tabora defeats Ben Rothwell. Kind of what I expected. I believe that's who I picked. Um, it was kind of funny because when you look at my predictions for the card, if I wouldn't have changed my two picks uh, between the Joaquin Buckley fight. You know what? No. So I changed the Giga Chikadze pick. So I had him originally, and I changed it to Marlon Morales or Omar Morales. I'm sorry. Um, and I changed it. So I got that one wrong. Then I picked Joaquin Buckley, and I changed that at the last minute. And uh, got that one wrong, obviously. And then same thing happened with uh, the Ilya Taporia and Yusuf Salal. I had Yusuf Salal, or I had Ilya Taporia for the longest time in my list and had him highlighted as the winner because I thought he was going to win. And I ended up changing it, doing just over research, you know, over analyzing, um, over paralysis by analysis, kind of. And I just went back on some of my words, but I could have gone undefeated on this card. I mean, I could have gone. 8-1 or 9-1 or 9-0, and I'm sorry, on all my picks if I would have just stuck with my gut. But that's not what happened. So, um, yeah, but it is what it is. And it was a great card, and we're going to keep talking about it right now. Let's talk about Edson Barbosa defeating Makwan Amir Khani via decision. Um, he looked great. I thought Edson looked good. I thought Makwan Amir Khani um, looked halfway decent. I don't think he looked terrible. By any stretch of the imagination, the biggest weapon for Edson Barbosa was just that step in right hand. He uh, 
he would he would shift his weight, step in, and just pop that straight right hand down the center. Um, kind of give a little lean to it, so you get that a little bit of an outside of an angle, uh, a little bit of an outside angle on the opponent. But you're also making them think you're going to step in, and it makes them hesitate a little bit. And then you just pop that right hand because a lot of guys will go one two, set it up with the jab. They'll go one three two, set it up with the jab hook cross. But if you just step in, fake it, and then pop that right hand down the middle and shoot it, got to shoot that right hand. It can catch the opponent off guard, and every time Barbosa landed that step in, just just power right hand, it, it dropped um, Makwan Amir Khani, and it was a good showing. I mean, Barbosa did have some trouble against Amir Khani. I believe he did get taken down in this fight and uh, controlled on the ground for a little bit, but overall, he had a phenomenal performance. Um, Makwan Amir Khani. Obviously fought out of southpaw, so that rear body kick from Barbosa, which you know Barbosa is one of the best kickers in the sport. That rear body kick from Barbosa is always going to be trouble against a guy in an opposite stance. So he was constantly just throwing those inside low kicks, throwing that kick to the body, looking to, to control the lead hand of Makwan Amir Khani and trying to touch it, touch it, touch it, and slap so he could just take that slight step out to his left and get to the outside angle. Um, outside angles and outside foot dominance when you're fighting a guy in an opposite stance. That's some of the most important things in combat sports. And uh, I know a lot of people talk about it now, um, but, you know, it's very, very important. But it was kind of a slow fight in the beginning, you know, just kind of trying to find the range. Um, Barbosa used some good defense, slipping away from some of the shots of Maquan, and then eventually just... Uh, time that right hand and uh, stepped in. And every time he landed that right hand, it dropped him. Um, Barbosa tried to land that rear body kick and uh, Maquan caught it and uh, used it to take down Barbosa in that first round. So that's good from Bar or that was good from Maquan. He was able to catch some of the kicks and use it to get grappling exchanges. But Barbosa was able to defend a lot of the uh, grappling and submission attempts of Maquan in order to get back up to his feet. And that's something we were, I was worried about was yes, Barbosa is a good kicker, but Maquan can use those kick, those kick catches to then transition into takedowns. And that was something that definitely worried me in this fight, but you know, it didn't have to worry me much because Barbosa was able to catch him and drop him with the right hand here. I have the highlights up right now. Um, controlling, touching the lead hand because they're in opposite stances, touch, 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 fake, faint, slip, um, kind of fake and faint, get, get Maquan to freeze up a little bit, and then just step in with that power right hand. Here it comes. Boom. Yeah, so he would, he like I said, he takes that little slight slip out to his left side, makes you think he's just going to fake and faint, and then shoots the right hand down the middle. Um, and you stay in the same space. You don't really close the distance. You don't step in with that right hand. You kind of keep the same range that you're at, but you slip, you, you slip out of the box slip, shoot it. And that was landing every time. Maquan didn't see it coming. Um, he almost got submitted by uh, Barbosa. Or Barbosa tried to lock up an anaconda choke, but it didn't work. Um, and every time that sh that right hand down the center where he just shot the right hand down the center, boom, it was always landing. And uh, yeah, Barbosa gets the win via, I believe it was a unanimous decision. He did get taken down, like I said, and controlled a little bit on the ground by Maquan, but we kind of figured that's what was going to happen. But the striking and his ability to get back up to his feet, phenomenal, phenomenal performance for Edson Barbosa and a big win for him in the featherweight division after a somewhat controversial loss in his last fight to Dan Ige. So if he had a win over Ige and Amir Khani, man, he would be getting somebody like Kelvin Cater. But uh, that, that's, that freaking slip right hand the the shoot in the right hand down the middle was phenomenal really really good 
And uh, it was working for Barbosa. It was money all night. Same with the body kicks. But yeah, we know that if I was going to pick a next fight for Edson Barbosa, I would give him Hurricane Shane Burgos. I know Burgos is coming off a loss, but Edson lost to Ige, and then now he's coming off a win. So I think Barbosa versus Hurricane Shane Burgos is a phenomenal fight. If not, just rebook the fight that was originally supposed to happen, which was Edson Barbosa versus Super Sadiq Yusuf. I think either of those fights are good matchups for Edson Barbosa at 145 pounds. So hopefully we get one of those. And uh, if not, you know, then we'll see what happens. And then finally, talking about the main event, Corey Sandhagen knocks out Marlon Moraes with a wheel kick in the second round. Um, really just a flawless performance from Corey Sandhagen. From top to bottom, just an extremely, extremely well-done, technical, almost flawless. I mean, he barely got touched by Marlon. And when you have a guy who's as explosive and as powerful and has as much knockout power and speed as a guy like Marlon Moraes, um, that's that's saying a lot when he barely touched you. I mean, he wasn't even able to use his kicking game. And we knew that the kicking game of Magic Marlon Moraes was going to be a big problem for Corey Sandhagen, but the way he was able to constantly switch stances and change angles and move off to his left and switch stance to his orthodox and then move to his right and switch to southpaw, move, step in into, into orthodox, step back into southpaw, constantly switching stances, touching the lead hand of Marlon, touch and then throw the lead slap hook to direct him towards that right side just to keep his guard up, constantly giving him reaching forward with the rear hand and then stepping into southpaw and jabbing from that same side to then make um, make uh, Marlon's defense have to go to the other side and just constantly switching it up, landing that left power body kick. So he'd be an orthodox. He'd step forward into southpaw, land that powerful left body kick to the, the powerful left kick to the body and then use that to step into orthodox again. And uh, just phenomenal, phenomenal work. Yeah, so sorry guys that I had to cut it off, but we're back. And let's talk about the main event. Obviously, big, huge win for Corey the Sandman Sandhagen over Magic Marlon Morais. And uh, really just a phenomenal performance, like I said. And we discussed some of the you know intricacies of the fight, but let's talk about it. I'm going to pull up some highlights real quick, and uh, we'll talk about some of the things that Corey was able to do against Marlon and really shut down the game. The biggest thing for, for uh, Corey was to be able to shut down the kicking game of Marlon Morais. That was the one area of explosiveness that a lot of people gave the advantage to Marlon Morais in was the kicking game, the switch kicks, the body kicks, um, the kicks to the, the inside and outside of the legs. But the, with all the stance switches um, and Corey throwing his own leg kicks, constantly throwing leg kicks and then using it to switch stance from orthodox to southpaw, constantly trying to fake and feint into range with that lead hand. And then he used that fake jab, fake the jab to slip to the left and then rip that left hook to the body on the right side of Marlon. And then Marlon tried to counter with that overhand right. But a lot of the times when he would throw that overhand right and slip inside the jab of Sandhagen, um, Sandhagen would be able to deflect the right hand off his shoulder. So it looked like some of them landed, but he was just turning the shoulder over, covering the chin, and it was deflecting off of the shoulder using that lead hand. 
Now he would, then he would fake the jab. And like I said, what we talked about a little bit earlier, where he would fake the jab and then use the fake jab to slap that with that lead hook. So fake and then slap lead hook and use that to get the angle fake slap the lead hook um, that on one area that controls the rear power hand of Marlin because you're, you're slapping that rear hand, which is the power side. And then you're slapping it on the side. So you're, you're touching it and then you're slapping it on the re the side with the hook that helps you move a little bit out to your left, giving you a little bit of a better angle, but it also controls that rear hand unless they slip inside that slap and come over with the uh, power right hand. Um, Sandhagen tried to throw like a bolo punch where he used that, where he slipped in and threw the right uppercut to step to Southpaw and Marlon tried to counter it with a left hook, and I believe it landed. But he's so seamless in his stance switches as Sandhagen that when he used that punch to switch stance into southpaw with that uppercut, after Marlon threw that overhand left from southpaw because he was in a in, he was kind of in a square stance, so the power could come from either side. Um, he just kind he just moved away from it and switched to southpaw again. And then he's back to orthodox and he's faking and he's ripping that left hook to the body. Touch, read, lip, rip that left hook to the body. Um, jumping with flying knees, coming up with like an upward jab, kind of like an up jab to a lead uppercut. Um, just constantly faking and feigning. Marlon tried to land a spinning back fist that tended to work. Um, Marlon threw a jab. Corey slipped, uh, slipped the jab and came up the center with the uppercut. That was a beautiful shot from Corey. He slipped outside and came up the center. And then after he lands stuff, after he lands a punch or lands a combination, he always is moving away from the shot. So he'll throw it and then he'll move back away from the shot. Um, just out of range, stepping in, stepping out. Um, as he gets backed up, he switches stances to be able to get the angle. And then he uses the jab from, uh, so he was in an orthodox stance, right? Which is uh, left, lead, left foot in front, right foot in back. And he used the jab or the power. So he used his rear hand, which was formerly the power hand and he just flicked it out there, but he used that to disguise the stance switch into, into Southpaw to then line up the left power kick to the body. This was beautiful work from Sandhagen touch, touch, touch with that rear hand, but you're in a, you're switching your stance. So now it's your lead hand. Boom. Whip that left kick to the body that worked so well against Marlon. Um, the left kick to the body was just money on the liver. Just touch, touch, left body kick, touch, touch, left body kick. Marlon got a takedown at the end of the first round, but uh, then Corey just went right back on it. He landed the question mark kick from the southpaw stance a lot, and he actually shouted out his orbital's broken, thinking that he broke his orbital bone with the uh, left question mark kick. But that was a really good weapon from Sandhagen. There was one in particular combination he landed with a... He was in an orthodox stance, and as was Marlon, um, he used that left, uh, the lead leg, leg kick on the inside to sweep Marlon's left leg towards his, towards uh, Sandhagen's right, which is his power side. So he swept that lead leg, moved him in the direction of the right power side, and then landed the knee to the body, and then pushed off and avoided the power shots of uh, Marlon. That's something you see a lot in traditional kickboxing and in Muay Thai, but you don't see a lot of people transition it over into MMA. So it's just sweeping that leg and then coming up the middle with that knee. So you're stepping, boom, boom, throw the knee. Um, when it comes to the finishing sequence um, with the spinning back kick, the reason it worked is he used that, that touching with the lead hand. He's always touching with that lead hand, trying to get you to be able to stay out of range, trying to get you to bite on a feint. He threw that lazy inside low kick to get Marlon to back up and watch his pattern. Did he move left? Did he move right? Did he back up straight? He used that to get him to back up. And then he threw spinning back fists 
um, a spinning back fist earlier in that first round, as did Marlon. You know, Marlon used the same technique, or Morice, I guess you could call him Marlon, Marlon Morice. Morice used the same technique in the spinning back fist, and it worked against Corey. But he used that inside low kick to, to throw it out there, to one, close the distance, to two, see how Marlon defended. And he didn't put his hands up. He just backed up because he thought. And then when he stepped in again after that kick, he faked with the jab to get Marlon to kind of block up top and uh, think that the low kick, think that the spin kick was going to come to the body because he faked up top. You're going to think that the next shot with the spinning back kick is going to go to the body. You're going to want to try to hit the liver. But so Marlon took his rear hand or took his lead hand and pulled it down to try to deflect the spin kick, thinking it was coming to the body, left him open for a wheel kick to the head and uh, dropped Marlin, jumped on top of him and got the finish via a second round TKO. So Corey Sandhagen defeats Magic Marlon Morais via a second round TKO. Um, like I said, phenomenal performance, went off without a hitch, barely took any damage. And uh, yeah, he's, he's going to be next for either the winner of Peter Yan and Eljamain Sterling, which is the co-main event for UFC 256. And we'll probably either talk about that on this episode or we're going to talk about that on the next episode. Um, I've already talked about Magic or uh, Peter Yan versus Eljamain Sterling and how I think that fight would play out. But uh, now that it's officially announced as the co-main event for December 12th, um, I'll have a deeper prediction and uh, go into it a little bit more. But uh, yeah, that, that's basically it. Um, what I think should be next for Sandhagen, if he's not going to get the winner of Sterling and Jan, I would give him TJ Dillashaw when Dillashaw comes back from his suspension in January. I know I saw rumblings of a Sugar Sean O'Malley versus TJ Dillashaw fight. Um, I like the fight, but I do not like the fight right now. I don't think it makes any sense for TJ. Um, I think TJ needs a top contender. He was the champion. He did cheat, um, tested positive for EPO erythropoietin, which helps with your cardio. Um, so he did cheat. He did admit to it. So maybe they just want him to work his way up to the top contenders. But I think giving him a guy just outside the top 15 is kind of a slap in his face. I would give him Corey Sandhagen or I would give him um, – who else could you give him? Let's see. Um. Or I would give him – can't give him Garbrandt because Garbrandt is going to um, 125. <sighs> you could give him Marlin, but no, you're probably going to want to give him somebody off a win. I would give TJ either Aldo or Sandhagen. I think those are your top options. Corey Sandhagen versus TJ Dillashaw, phenomenal fight. They are training partners. Um, but Corey said he has no problem fighting him. I don't think TJ would have trouble or have a problem in fighting Sandhagen, even though they're teammates. Um, I think you either give him that fight or you give me TJ Dillashaw versus Jose Aldo. Um, you could rematch Dillashaw and Cruz. I've always wanted to see that fight go down again. Um, I don't think TJ would take that fight. I mean, he might take it because it's Dominic Cruz, but I don't necessarily see him taking that fight. So I think Dillashaw will either fight Aldo when he comes back or he's going to fight um, Sandhagen. Those are his top best options at uh, 135. Okay, so now let's get into the fights this weekend. Obviously, everybody's looking forward to the main event. In the featherweight division, UFC Fight Island 6, you've got 
Um, Brian T city Ortega versus the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung taking place this Saturday, which tomorrow night, October 17th, 2020 from fight Island, Yas Island in Abu Dhabi. All right. So like I said, let's get into the predictions for UFC Fight Island 6 Ortega versus the Korean Zombie. I will only be doing the main card because the main card is where all the good fights are at. Um, there's not many good fights on the prelims. And I figured let's just cover the um, main card. So up first in the featherweight division, um, you've got Thomas Dominas Almeida, formerly a 135er in the bantamweight division, going up against Jonathan the Dragon Martinez, who holds a record of 12 wins and three defeats. Um, this is one of my most look forward to fights on the card, aside from the main event. I'm really, really looking forward to the return of Tomas Almeida. Um, Tomas Almeida is was one of the brightest prospects in the UFC. He came into the UFC and was on a streak of 20 and 0 and he faced Cody Garbrandt. I believe when he faced Garbrandt, Garbrandt was 7 and 0 or 8 and 0 somewhere around there. Um he got starched by Cody Garbrandt, got knocked out, came back, I believe, got one more win and then ended up losing to uh Rob Font and then Jimmy Rivera or Jimmy Rivera then Rob Font. Let's see here. Thomas Ada last fight. Well, he lost to Rob Font in his last fight in 2018. Um, on January 20th, 2018, he lost the fight. So it's been over two years since Thomas Almeida has been back in the UFC was again, 20 and Oh, and then went on a two and three, um, streak lost to Jimmy Rivera via decision, but he did end up dropping Jimmy Rivera in that fight. Um, defeated Albert Morales, lost to Cody Garbrandt, and then he beat Anthony Birdcheck, beat Brad Pickett, beat Yves Jaboin. So he's had some good wins. Um, I think he can definitely make a run at 135. There is a little bit of a problem considering the fact that he does tend to take a lot of shots, and he can get dropped pretty easily, but he's a guy who can get dropped and then come back and try to finish you like he did against Brad Pickett. Pickett ended up catching him with a left hook in their fight and dropping him, almost finishing him, ended up dropping him again, I believe, with a right hand. Um, Almeida caught him at the end of the round with the over with a step-in right elbow. And then again, when the, the second round of their fight, he ended up landing a switch knee, a switch flying knee and knocking out Brad Pickett. But he had been dropped in that fight already. Um, but obviously came back and got the win. So Almeida's very good. Almeida's got good lateral movement, good ability to move left and right, um, step in, fake, step into range, good jab, good low kicks, and good kicks to the body from that power right side um, and inside low kicks, right kick, and then inside left low kick. Um, he's very good at landing and then taking an angle. So he'll land the shot, and then he'll take the angle to the left or to the right. He never tends to stand straight in front of you. He does tend to get pressured, but even when he gets pressured, he's good at slipping and landing the overhand right to the left hook. Slipping, landing right hand, left uppercut, right hand. Um, good with the uppercut to the right hand and good with kicks. Um, Almeida's very good. I think he's just had a little bit of a rough patch, obviously, and he's a bit chinny. Um, going up against a guy like Jonathan Martinez, a lot of guys don't know, or a lot of people I feel like don't know how good Jonathan Martinez is. Martinez is going to be in an opposite stance from Thomas Almeida. He's going to be in a southpaw stance. So the outside foot dominance, like we always say with people from 
when they're really, when you have an orthodox versus a southpaw fighter, you want to get that outside foot. It's easier for the southpaw fighter to get the outside foot because they don't have to cover as much distance and take as many steps to get the outside foot. Um, the orthodox fighter has to take a little bit of an extra step, which and with which adds up with more time, and then you know it's harder to get to that area. But with uh, Jonathan Martinez, that power left, so anything from that left side in terms of kicking and knees is dangerous. He has very, very quick left body kicks, very, very quick left high kicks, good low kicks to the outside and inside of the leg. So on Thomas Almeida, it would be the inside low kick because they're in opposite stances. Or uh, wait, orthodox, southpaw. Okay, so the orthodox fighter will be inside low kicks. The southpaw fighter will be outside low kicks, I believe. Unless I'm thinking wrong. I probably am. But uh, forgive me if I'm wrong. But I, I know what I'm seeing in my head, but I'm probably not ex describing it the best way. Um, really, really good. Uh, the Obviously, the kicking game of Jonathan Martinez. And the knees. But the knees of Thomas Almeida are equally as dangerous. Almeida can, can easily try to land a flying switch knee, um, land a knee up the middle. Um, but Jonathan Martinez has two or three knockouts via a knee up the middle, um, stepping in and just uh, finding a way to time the head movement of the opponent or time his punch, the slips off his punches to uh, drive that left knee straight up the center and drop him. The only other guy I've seen get as many um, knockouts like that and be as efficient with that rear knee up the middle is Dan the Hangman Hooker. You've seen Hooker knock out Jim Miller and you've seen him knock out um, – who else did he get with that knee up the middle? Oh, uh, I can't think of the guy's name. Let me see. Dan Hooker got Jim Miller, and then he got somebody else. Hold on. Dan Hooker. Let's see. Um, um Here. Knocked out Gilbert Burns with a left hook, I remember. I think it was a left hook to the body, left hook up top. Knocked out Jim Miller with – oh, it was Ross Pearson. So he got Ross Pearson and um, Jim Miller with that knee up the middle. Um, I believe his was a rear knee. Yeah, it was a rear knee. So Jonathan Martinez is going to be looking to time the slipping head movement of Thomas Almeida and catch him with that knee up the middle. Um, but Almeida's got really good ability to slip and throw power shots. He'll slip left, throw the right hand, slip left, throw the right hand to the left hook. Um, good uppercuts, good kicking game. But most importantly is, is his lateral movement. One thing you see with Jonathan Martinez is he doesn't tend to cut a lot of angles in terms of his movement in the cage. He tends to just kind of move forward and backward, take some slight steps to the left and to the right. With Almeida, he's always moving, faking and fainting, popping that jab, popping that jab, jab, low kick, cut the angle, jab, right hand, left hook, cut the angle, jab, overhand, right, cut the angle, jab, inside, low kick, cut the angle. He's always cutting angles and moving. Does he tend to get uh, caught and pushed back? Yes. But another thing is with Martinez, Martinez tends to get drawn into brawls a little bit more than Almeida. Yes, Almeida does brawl, but Al I believe Almeida is a better counterpuncher than is Jonathan Martinez. Like I said, Martinez is very efficient with that left knee up the middle, that left body kick, and the check right hook. One thing he's going to be looking to land on Almeida is that check right hook to get that outside angle and then probably land the left kick to the body. So look for him to go check, check right hook, left kick to the body or check right hook to land the straight left hand down the center. Martinez does have a lot of power and his kicking game could cause a lot of trouble for Almeida. And if Almeida comes in lazy and tries to lower his level and just block up top, 
he can definitely get caught with that rear knee as he tries to either slip a shot, roll underneath the shot, or just cover up and try to lower his level. He can lower his level right into the rear knee of Jonathan Martinez and get caught. But if I'm going to go out on a limb here, I'm going to go out on a limb and pick Thomas Almeida to get the win. This is a very, very, very close fight. It's dangerous for both guys. There's no doubt about that. Either guy can get finished. Either guy can win this fight. Um, Martinez, like I said, he's dangerous. Um, that left, Those left kicks um, from the power power left kicks, the power knees, um, the check right hook, the move, the ability to move left and right, or the ability to just not be afraid to get into a brawl and stay calm could be a problem. But Almeida can stay calm in brawls as well. Um, if he gets, the only problem is, I think Almeida gets hurt has been hurt more and his chin is a little bit more suspect than Martinez, but I still think Almeida is going to find a way to uh, use like a traditional tie style approach, keep him at range, land inside and outside low kicks, pick him apart with that jab in the right hand and use his angles to have Martinez chasing and not be able to catch up to him. And I think Thomas Almeida gets the win via a unanimous decision over Jonathan Martinez. I'm excited for this fight. Um, 22 and three versus 12 and three. Um, I, I'm really excited. So Thomas Almeida to defeat Jonathan Martinez via unanimous decision. All right, up next in the welterweight division, you've got Claudio Hannibal Silva, who holds a record of 13 wins and one defeat going up against veteran James Krause, who holds a record of 27 wins and nine losses. Um, I don't see this fight. I see this fight going very similar. Well, really similar to how James Krause versus Jesse Taylor went on the ultimate fighter where Jesse Taylor was able to just out-wrestle him, out-grind him, get in the top position, work ground and pound, and eventually get a submission and just tire him out. Claudio Hannibal Silva has rudimentary striking, to say the least. He's not a very good striker. Um, I believe he's a southpaw, not really, just kind of plods forward on the feet, but immediately once he gets that body lock or gets a double leg takedown or is able to get the body lock and take you down, he can find a way to submit you, get top control, and eventually choke you out. And uh, against Jesse Taylor on The Ultimate Fighter, James Krause had a lot of trouble with the constant wrestling and the constant takedowns. Um, James Krause does have a good ability to um, scramble on the ground. He can, even when he gets taken down and controlled like he did against Sergio Morais in the first round, he got taken down, controlled from side control, but he found a way to uh, reverse position, scramble, get on top, ended up, uh, I believe he ended up countering a step over into mount and rolling and uh, getting into top position in the full guard and then eventually standing up and then eventually obviously beat Sergio Morais via knockout in the third round, I believe, via TKO. So um, James Krause's striking is going to be better than Claudio Silva. If he can keep it on the feet and keep him at range, he's going to be able to pop him with that jab, land good low kicks, land the right hand, and just kind of pick him apart from the feet. I don't expect Claudio Silva to have much of an answer for James Krause on the feet, but Equally as much, I don't expect James Krause to have much of an answer for Claudio Hannibal Silva on the ground. I mean, he's 13 and one for a reason. Um, takedowns, um, ground and pound, and control from the top. I think he. I think the first round is the first half of the first round is pretty close. You know, just trying to time it, get in, find his range. James Krause is going to be trying to pick him apart from range, not getting too close, so that. Claudio can enter on a clinch exchange and go to double unders and then eventually work to the back, get the body lock, trip him, take him down, um, get the hooks in and control him from the back and then eventually work from the mount. Um, I think first round, first half of the round will be good, but I think Claudio Silva finds a way to either time a kick, catch the kick, take him down or uh, 
push him up against the fence, work his grappling up against the fence, take him down, and eventually get a submission. So I'm going to go with Claudio Hannibal Silva to defeat James Krause via a second round rear naked choke. Um, I'm rooting for James Krause. I really like James Krause. I just think the grappling and wrestling and top pressure of Claudio Silva is going to be too much for him. So Claudio Silva to defeat James Krause via second round rear naked choke. All right. Up next in the light heavyweight division, we have a pretty, pretty good fight. We've got Jimmy Crute, who holds a record of 11 wins and one defeat, going up against the Baltic gladiator Modestus Bukowskis, who holds a record of 11 wins and two defeats. Um, Modestus Bukowskis is new to the UFC. I believe he's only had one fight in the UFC. And uh, here, let's see. Modestus Bukowskis. Pull it up. Here we go. Pull up his stats. So holds a record of 11 wins and two defeats. Uh, he's 26 years old. He has a win over Andre Michalaitis where he won via a first round knockout. At the end of the first round when Michalaitis was looking for a takedown, he, um, he was able to stuff the head. And, uh, well, he was able to widen his base up against the cage because he was looking for a double leg. And then he got the angle and landed those downward elbows to the side of the head and ended up finishing him at the end of the first round via knockout with those elbows. He's had a finish like that previously in cage warriors where the opponent would shoot a takedown. He would widen his base to stuff the takedown, stuff the head and land elbows up against the cage to the side of the head and get a finish. So Jimmy Crute is primarily a grappler and one of his best weapons is that Kimura he can get the Kimura from the ground but he can also use the Kimura from the feet to one defend takedowns from the opponent so look for him to try to defend Modestus Bukowskis's takedowns with the Kimura grip the Kimura trap defend it and then use that inside leg to kick out um, to kick back, go to his back, and then sweep him to get into top position or use the Kimura to um, rip the Kimura and then eventually get him onto his back, step over with the leg over the head, and then rip that Kimura and try to get the submission. Jimmy Crude has had, I believe, two Kimura submissions in the UFC. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but he lost to Misha Serkinov, but then here, Jimmy Crude. Up. He got submitted by Misha Serkinov with a Peruvian necktie, but Misha Serkinov's a phenomenal grappler. Um, he defeat defeated Michael Olazechek, Oleksichik. I think that's how you say his name, Michael Oleksichik, via a first round submission um, at UFC Fight Night Felder versus Hooker. I believe he got a Kimura in that fight. Like I said, ripped the Kimura grip. Um, defeated Sam Elvey via a first-round knockout at UFC 234. Lost to Misha Serkinov. So he's got good submissions, but he's got good ability to strike on the feet, too. If you watch his Contender Series fight, he has a really, really solid left hook. I think he countered the right hand of his opponent, landed the left hook, stumbled him, and then eventually got the standing TKO on the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series. So he has good punches and good kicks and good grappling. But the main area he's going to want to have the going to want to take this to is the grappling up against the cage, getting takedowns and looking to lock up a Kimura. That's his best submission. If, if Jimmy Crute's going to get a submission, it's probably going to be a Kimura. And uh, when you look at a guy like Modestus Bukowskis, he's very good with lateral movement. 
Really, really good at taking angles, moving left and right. He's a big guy for the light heavyweight division. Very big, very powerful. He's got a good right spinning back kick to the body. So look for him to try to implement that against Jimmy Crute as Crute tries to close the distance. If he can keep him at range, he can spin and land the back kick. Um, but when you look at a guy like Bukowskis, um, just very, very big, solid guy, a good one-two, and he, and he always moves to his right after he lands the one-two, one-two, and then cut the angle to the right. One-two, constantly cutting angles, shifting, using that triangle step where you bring your lead leg back, almost touch the heel of the rear foot, and then bring that rear foot out to that 45-degree angle to uh, cut the angle. That's, that's a triangle step. When I say cut the angle – it's normally based off of using that triangle step. So you use that triangle step to cut the angle to your left or to your right. Um, he's got a finish with that spinning back kick to the body in cage warriors. Um, really good control from the uh, framing off the clinch and landing knees and elbows. So look for him to do that against Jimmy Crute if he can push him up against the cage and uh, control him. But he also is a good grappler. So although Jimmy Crute is great with the Kimura and good with his jujitsu, don't be surprised if if Modestus Bukowskis can submit him. I mean, he has good control from the back, good ability to get rear naked chokes, get the hooks in, lock in that submission, good ability to get arm bars from the back. You've seen in some of his other fights that he was able to uh, get back control, get the hooks in, re reach around the arm, and then eventually lock up that arm bar and use the momentum to get the opponent to go to his back. Um, good jabs, good left power kick, good right power kick. He's got really powerful kicks. His switch kick to the body is very good from that left side. I just think that Modestus Bukowskis has more finishing ability and has more weapons than does Jimmy Crute. Yes, Jimmy Crute has probably faced the tougher competition and Jimmy Crute, you know, does have power in his punches and his grappling is good, but I think Modestus Bukowskis is just dangerous in, in different areas. He's dangerous defending takedowns. He's dangerous getting takedowns. He's dangerous from the top. He's dangerous from the bottom. He's dangerous on the feet with punches and kicks from the lead side, from the rear side. He's dangerous everywhere. And his movement and ability to cut angles and move laterally is a big, big weapon against a guy like Jimmy Crute who doesn't tend to cut a lot of angles. So I think Modestus Bukowskis comes, comes up large here and gets the finish. I'm going to go with Modestus Bukowskis to defeat Jimmy Crute via a... Oof. I'm going to go with a second round... TKO. I think he hurts him with elbows like he did in his first fight in the UFC when he tries to go for a takedown and then eventually just jumps on top of him and gets the ground and pound and gets the finish. So I'm picking the Baltic gladiator Modestus Bukowskis to defeat Jimmy Crute via a second round TKO. All right, now we move to the co-main event of the evening in the women's flyweight division. You have the number one ranked Caitlin Chukagian, blonde fighter who holds a record of 14 wins and three defeats, going up against the number two-ranked strawweight contender, former strawweight champion, making her way up to 125 pounds. That is Bate Astaka, Bate Astaka, Jessica Andrade. Um, really, really interesting fight here. Jessica Andrade is coming off that loss to Rose Namajunas at UFC 251. Um, had a really, really solid third round, arguably won the third round against Rose. Her head movement and her ability to slip and counter had never looked any better than it did in that fight against Rose. Rose was just a little bit too technical, a little bit too 
um, light on the feet and uh, technical for Andrade. Andrade kind of just slipped and rolled and came in with punches, kind of like a Mike Tyson style with that slip and roll and then bop, 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 slip and roll, bop, 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 constantly moving her head, slipping off the, the center line to counter over the top of Rose Namajunas' shots. Now, going up against a girl like Caitlin Chukagian, I believe Caitlin Chukagian is coming off a win over... Antonina Shevchenko, after she lost her title fight against Valentina Shevchenko, she was able to just get up against the cage, get her in a body lock, take her down, and control her on the ground with ground and pound, um, control from the mount, control from the back, and just her top control is vicious. Now, the question is, is she going to be able to use her grappling and top control against a girl like Jessica Andrade, who's very, very powerful and very strong? I definitely give the strength advantage to Jessica Andrade. Without a doubt, I give the strength advantage to Andrade. I think she has big power. I think it's going to translate well to 125. Um, I think her the height differential um, will be a little bit of an, an issue because if Chukagian can use that jab and use those kicks to the body and low kicks, she's got a good kicking game and good boxing. She's not just a good grappler. She's good everywhere. Um, Kaylin Chukagian is good everywhere the fight takes place. Jabs, one twos, slipping, pop, pop, pop. She's gonna look to keep Andrade at range. But the the since seeing Andrade's last fight with the with the way she was able to slip away from the long range punches and try to get inside, I think she's gonna be able to do that against Caitlin Chukagian. I think she's gonna be able to slip the jab, slip the right hand, and come in with shots to the body and rip up top. Like I said, she reminds me a little bit of a mixture of Mike Tyson and Vanderlei Silva. She's like the female Vanderlei Silva, you know, rolling, slipping, pop, 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 ripping shots. She looked a lot more technical in her second fight against Rose at 251 than I think she's ever looked in her career. And her cardio was phenomenal. She didn't get tired throughout that whole fight. And that's another thing. The cardio of Andrade, I think, can translate very well against Chukagian. I think she's going to slip inside, land shots to the body. I think so. grappling exchanges, I do believe Chukagian will get her down to the ground, but I think that Jessica Andrade will find a way to... Uh, Get up to a hip, um, get out, uh, shrimp her hips out, get up to her feet, and then work back on the feet. I think the power and the ability of Andrade to slip and close the range and counter over the jabs, over the right hands of Caitlin Chukagian, I think she's going to piece her up. I think she's going to land some bombs, land some power, and get a second round TKO over Caitlin Chukagian and probably become the next contender at, in, at the flyweight division and face the winner of Jennifer Maya and Valentina Shevchenko, which is probably going to be Shevchenko. So it would be Shevchenko versus Andrade. Um, I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's a phenomenal fight, but I'm going with Bate Astaka. I believe it means pile driver in Brazilian or in Portuguese, but uh, Jessica Andrade to defeat Caitlin Chukagian via a second round knockout. I think the power, I think her ability to slip inside of the long range shots of Chukagian. I do think Chukagian's going to have some success if she can keep it at range the whole time and keep Andrade away. Um, then she can win a point fighting type of style, but I don't think she's going to be able to keep her away for all 15 minutes. And I think eventually Andrade lands, catches her, drops her and knocks her out. So Jessica Andrade to defeat Caitlin Chukagian via a second round knockout. All right, guys, now we move to the main event of the evening between top five ranked contenders in the featherweight division, a fight a long time in the making with some bad blood behind it in the uh, in the number two ranked Brian T-City Ortega coming back after almost a two-year layoff, I believe. It might be over two years going up 
against the number four ranked Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung, who holds a record of 16 wins and five defeats. This is a phenomenal fight. I've been looking forward to this fight for so long, and we were supposed to have it, like I said, I believe once or twice before, and it never happened. Now we're getting it tomorrow night. The main event, five rounds on Fight Island, and I couldn't be more excited. This is a phenomenal matchup. Um, Brian Ortega has not fought since his loss, his title fight loss to Max Blessed Holloway at UFC 231, where he suffered his first defeat. He came into that fight 14-0, and and again, like I said, suffered his first loss. Just kind of, he had some good moments in the fight against Holloway, but Holloway just ended up picking him apart and stopping him and uh, getting the the TKO in between the fourth and the fifth round on the stool. They stopped the fight. Um, the one-twos of Max Holloway, the range control, um, ability to stuff the, stuff the takedowns. Um, the biggest weapons I think Brian Ortega used in the fight against Holloway, he had a really good uh, left hook right hand that he was able to land on Holloway a few times. Um, good kicks to the head. He tried to land some high kicks. Um, he's got sneaky high kicks, actually. One thing I think a lot of people don't realize about Brian Ortega is that his high-kicking game is very, very good. I would give the low-kicking advantage to the Korean Zombie, but the high kicks are a big weapon for Brian Ortega. You saw him try it against Cub Swanson. You saw him use it against um, Frankie Edgar. Um, and also the elbows countering in an opponent coming in, for, coming in, moving to close the distance. Counter elbows for Brian Ortega could be a big, big weapon against the Korean zombie. Um, obviously, like I said, coming off a loss, that fight was in December of 2018 or no, was it 2018? Hold on. Let me look this up. I think it might've Brian. I think it was 2018. Brian Ortega. Yeah. Okay. December, 2018. So a, a little less than two years since his last fight. But the difference is, what are we going to see from Brian Ortega? He said he's made a lot of strides in his striking game, his defense, his his movement, his jiu-jitsu has been perfected, you know, not perfected, but really refined in these last, you know, year and a half, two years. And it's going to be interesting to see, will he come back better than ever or will the ring, will the cage rust or the ring rust be a factor against the Korean zombie. You know, the Korean zombie in his first fight back um, looked decent and he got the first round finish, but he got hit a lot and got stunned by Dennis Bermudez, but he was able to counter the the jab, uh, the slip jab of Bermudez with that rear uppercut, drop him and get the finish. Um, and then after that, I believe that's when he lost to, here, let's see. I believe that's when he lost to the to Yair Rodriguez by the and he was going to win the decision and uh, he got caught with that crazy upward elbow um, as he was closing the distance. Uh, Yair just bent over and landed that elbow, stuck that elbow up. Korean Zombie ran right into it and lost. Um, here, let's see, 2018. So he lost to Yair in 2018, and then prior to that, he came back and beat Dennis Bermudez via first round knockout. So he beats Bermudez. On uh, at UFC Fight Night 104 via first round knockout, he loses to Yair Rodriguez via a fifth round knockout at four minutes 59 seconds of the fifth round, and then he comes back and defeats Hanato Moicano via first round knockout. 
and Frankie Edgar via a first round knockout. And now he's got Brian T city Ortega, um, common opponents. They've both faced, um, Hanato Moicano and they've both faced, um, Frankie Edgar. Now I think that Brian Ortega had at the time, it was more impressive for him to beat Frankie Edgar than it was for Chan Sung Jung to defeat Frankie Edgar. They both beat him in the first round, I believe. So, it's equally as impressive either way. It was, like I said, more impressive for Ortega to beat him because he came in when it was supposed to be Holloway versus Edgar. Holloway had to pull out. Um, Ortega jumped in and faced Frankie Edgar and got the finish and then vaulted himself into title contention. But, you know, to be honest, when you, when I break down this fight um, and then when you look at Hanato Moicano, Hanato Moicano versus Brian Ortega, Moicano was beating him, piecing him up on the feet, and then Ortega was able to catch the guillotine and get the submission. So, and Ortega, uh, Chan Sung Jung knocked out Hanato Moicano in the first round with a beautifully timed overhand right, slipped inside the jab and came over the top with the right hand. Um, probably one of the cleanest overhand rights you're ever going to see in combat sports. So if you have not watched that, look up Chan Sung Jung versus Hanato Moicano and watch that knockout. But uh, when you look at some of the stats, we'll obviously break down some of the stats for this fight. It's always good to break down the stats for the main event. Um, Let's see. When you look at the stats, um, Brian Ortega has a one-inch height advantage, 5'8 to 5'7 for the Korean Zombie. Um, the Korean Zombie has a three-inch reach advantage over Brian Ortega, but I feel like um, Ortega fights longer, even though he has the 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 um, even though he has the shorter reach, he fights at a longer distance than the Korean Zombie. So 69 inches to 72 inches, a uh, leg reach. It's a half an inch advantage for Brian Ortega. I don't think that's going to make much of a difference. Um, when you look at win percentage breakdowns, um, Brian Ortega has 21% of his wins coming by way of knockout, 50% by submission and 29% via decision. And then Korean zombie has 38% of his victories coming by way of knockout, 50% of his wins coming by way of submission and 13% of his wins coming by way of decision. You look at the average fight time, it's very, very close. 11 minutes and one second for Brian T-City Ortega to 10 minutes and 21 seconds for the Korean Zombie. But recent fights, um, Zombie's got three back-to-back-to-back first-round finishes. So, or two back-to-back first-round finishes and then lost to uh, Yair and then beat Bermudez before that in the first round. So, um, really, really close fight. Uh, significant strikes landed per minute in a 15-minute fight. 4.07 land for Brian Ortega to 4.25 for the Korean Zombie. So very close, very active guys on the feet. Uh, 33% of significant strikes land for Brian Ortega to 39% for the Korean Zombie. Um, strikes absorbed per minute. Ortega takes way more shots. 7.36 absorbed per minute for Brian Ortega to 3.77 absorbed for the Korean Zombie. Um, defense, 50% of significant strikes defended by Ortega to 60% for Korean Zombie. So Zombie is better defensively, and he takes less shots. But you could see that in the stats breakdown. And he's also more accurate with his significant strikes. But they land almost the same amount. So they're just as active, but Korean Zombie is more accurate and uh, better defensively than Brian Ortega. When you look at the grappling, takedown averages per 15 minutes, uh, 0.51 takedown average for Brian Ortega to 0.81 for Chan Sung Jung. 
uh, 16% takedown accuracy for Brian Ortega to a 41% takedown accuracy for Chan Sung Jung. Uh, with Brian Ortega's jiu-jitsu, which that's going to be his biggest area of advantage and his biggest advantage in the fight is his grappling, his jiu-jitsu, his neck attacks, whether it's a guillotine, whether it's an anaconda choke, whether it's a... Um, his guillotines and his anaconda chokes, I think, are going to be the biggest weapon against the Korean zombie. But will we get into much grappling in this fight? I do believe we will have some grappling exchanges, but I don't expect it to be that crazy in terms of uh, takedown, you know, in terms of the grappling. I think it stays on the feet for the majority of the fight. If it does end up going to the ground, it's going to be Ortega entering into a clinch exchange, probably in the double unders. Um, then going to overhooks on the arms, going around the back to get like a high body lock, and then using that to reach around with the one arm to the top, to the neck, reach around, try to lock up a guillotine, kick off the fence, and jump into a guillotine. Um, that's one of his best weapons. He shoots a takedown, usually shoots a single leg in term, instead of a double leg, and then uses that single leg to hike it up and then eventually try to use that to take the back, then get the back, reach around to the top of the head, or reach around. The, the head from the back and then either lock up a anaconda choke where he grabs the uh, the bicep and then grabs his shoulder and rolls the opponent over like he did to Cub Swanson or uses that back control to reach around, get the, the front headlock, and then use it to get into a guillotine and jump guard with it. Those are the best weapons for Brian T-City Ortega. Um, when you look at um, takedown defense, 56% of takedowns defended by Ortega to a 75% takedown defense for Brian for a Korean zombie. So I don't expect much ta many takedowns. I think takedown attempts will come from Ortega, but he will use the takedown attempts to, um, you know, break the takedown attempt and try to get the back or try to break the takedown attempt, use it to get into a clinch and then eventually work from that body lock to uh, get control of the head and arm. That's really how I expect Brian Ortega to get it. He's very sneaky in terms of his jujitsu. It's not rudimentary jujitsu. He's a Gracie jujitsu black belt. Um, he, uh, trained under Henner Gracie. So he's very, very good in terms of his submissions and is in the way he sets up those submissions and finds openings. Um, when you look at the submission average, it's a bigger advantage for um, Brian Ortega. He has almost 1.36 submission submissions per 15 minutes to a 0 0.64 per, uh, 0 0.64 for uh, Korean Zombie. So Ortega's more active in terms of searching for the submissions, but Korean Zombie is definitely good on the ground. He's no slouch, but I do expect Brian Ortega to have the advantage in terms of the jujitsu. Now, when you look at the technical aspects of the fight, aside from what we've already discussed, um, Brian Ortega loves to use the shoulder roll defense where he covers up with a high guard on the right side and then shoulder rolls to deflect the power right hands of the opponents or deflect the jabs and then use lateral movement to move side to side. Um, he's got good movement, good footwork. Ortega can move left and right. He can move into range. He loves to close the distance with that wide left hook to the power straight down the middle. Um, really good high kicks, like I said, that I don't think a lot of people tend to notice from Ortega because he doesn't get finishes with the kicks, but the high kicks set up the finish after the elbow against Brian or against Frankie Edgar. And then that led to the uppercut, um, you know, so he's got good kicks. He's better at range, low kicks. I give the advantage to, uh, the Korean zombie in terms of leg kicks, but high kicks, I give the advantage to Ortega. So they have their advantages in the kicking game in terms of, uh, in different areas of the fight. When you look at the boxing, um, 
Chan Sung Jung does move forward, but in but lately in his fights, he's kind of just played it safe, used the fakes, uh, uh, you know, throw out some feeler shots. He likes to use that sweeping left hook to try to gauge the reaction of the opponents, you know, jab to a sweeping left hook, sweeping left hook to see where the opponent moves his head. And then he slipped inside the jab of Hanato Moicano and came over with that overhand right. He was gauging the distance, gauging the reactions. He kind of lulls you to sleep in the beginning with a very false sense of security. But if you tend to hurt him or if he hurts you, he's going to push forward and go on the offensive and uh, try to finish you. They don't call him the zombie for no reason. Um, he can take a lot of shots. He'll keep moving forward. You have to take him out to beat him. You have to finish him. He will control the distance. He will keep moving forward, push you back, and try to knock you out. Um, he doesn't have any quit in him. Brian Ortega's a dog too, though, man. Brian Ortega does not have quit in him either. He's got good striking. You know, like I said, good jabs, good hook to a right hand, good high kicks. His elbows are going to be his biggest weapon against the Korean zombie because if the zombie doesn't, if Chan Sung Jung doesn't play it safe and try to play technical and kind of just pick his shots and he moves in and rushes against Ortega, he can get countered with that over that elbow over the top and uh, he got hit with an upward elbow from Yair coming in, closing the distance, regarding his, disregarding the defense and running right into it. So I think Ortega can catch him. He uses the lead arm to uh, cover his chin with the shoulder and, like I said, shoulder roll, but he also will deflect with that shoulder roll, and then that hides the elbow from the lead side. So he'll deflect and then come over with the elbow and then use it to, to follow you up with the right hand. Um, I think if Zombie plays it safe, he's a better striker than Ortega. I think he's more clean. He's got sharper strikes and he's got more power than T-City on the feet. And I think his defense is better than Ortega. Not the original Korean zombie, the one who would just come forward, bum rush, keep his hands down and just try to finish you. That's not the Korean zombie that wins this fight. The zombie who we saw against Moicano, where he's very patient, kind of letting the fight come to him, and then wah! And the the paid the uh, zombie we saw against Frankie Edgar, where he timed him coming in, caught him with that left hook, I believe, as he came in, boom! And then right hand, left hook, uppercut, left hook, and dropped him, and then got on top of him, and uh, he finished Moicano and Frankie Edgar from the exact same position. He hurts you. He jumps on you, takes your back, gets the hooks in, flattens you out, and pounds you out from the flattened out position. He loves to do that. He'll And when you try to build up a base, he'll get the underhooks under your arm and get the hooks in on your legs and flatten you out again and then go back to ground and pound. And if he gets that against Ortega, I don't expect him to take his back and flatten out a guy like Ortega. I could see it happening if he hurts him really bad on the feet, um, but... I'm not 100% confident that we're going to see that in this fight. But, uh, yeah, I think I think Zombie is patient enough to exploit the defensive holes in the game of Brian Ortega. I think he lands some good power shots. I think the first two rounds are uh, very, very competitive. Or the, You know what? I think it's going to be... Oh, I don't know if we're going to get a finish. Oh, it's so hard. This fight is so close, guys. Um, I'm going to go with the Korean zombie to defeat Brian Ortega. I think Ortega is a lot more dangerous on the feet than people give him credit for, but I just think that zombie is in this new type of swagger and calmness where he's just ready to, to just finish you. 
He's ready to take you out, and he doesn't even do it by being reckless. He just does it by timing you and countering you. And I think he's going to find the defensive holes in Brian Ortega's game. I think he's going to counter him coming in, pick him apart, um, kind of – I think he's going to be able to stop some of the grappling exchanges, but he has to make sure that he keeps his back off the fence and doesn't allow Ortega to shoot a single leg and uh, then transition to the body lock, take the back, and then reach around with the head and arm. If he gets control of the head and arm of Korean Zombie, it's going to be very interesting to see the grappling between the two, but I expect Brian Ortega to have the advantage in the jiu-jitsu department. I don't think there's anybody at 145 who has better jiu-jitsu than Brian T. City Ortega except maybe a guy like Ryan Hall, but I still think that Ortega has the best jujitsu in the UFC. So, oh, it's a close fight, but I got to go with the Korean zombie. I'm going to go with Chan Sung Jung to defeat Brian T-City Ortega via a... I'm going to go with a fourth-round TKO. I think the damage accumulation, similar to how the Holloway fight went... Um, I think Ortega does hurt zombie. Zombie does tend to get hit and hurt sometimes. I think Jung can get stung. And I didn't mean to have that rhyme there, but I definitely think he can get stung and hurt. And if he gets hurt, Ortega is going to immediately look to get a hold of the neck and get a submission. But my pick is the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung to defeat Brian T city Ortega via a fourth round TKO. And uh, yeah, guys, that's it for these predictions. I hope you enjoyed this episode, a longer episode, but we had a lot to cover up next predictions for the, for the biggest fight. Upcoming on Fight Island, UFC 254, the undefeated Habib Nurmagomedov defending the championship against Justin the Highlight Gaethje. Champion versus interim champ. Will the O go or will the highlight fade to existence? I don't know. We're going to find out. Predictions for that fight coming up later this week or uh, probably early next week. I'm going to try to put them out on Monday. So Monday of next week, I'll have my predictions up for UFC 254. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for all the support on the Touch Em Up podcast. Um, you can get this podcast anywhere audio podcasts are distributed. That includes Anchor, Anchor Podcast, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts. Anywhere you can get your podcast, you can listen to the Touch Em Up podcast. Support me on social media. Twitter is at uh, armbarnation316. That is A-R-M-B-A-R-N-A-T-I-O-N 316. And on Instagram, it is glorious M and M. That is G-L-O-R-I-O-U-S-M-A-N-D-M. And uh, get it out to all your friends. Like my posts, share, send it to anybody you know who's a fan of mixed martial arts. And uh, yeah, I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Have a good night, everybody, all right?